This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hi guys, my name is Sammy J. I have been working as a correspondent and interviewer since I was 13. And now at 17, I am so honored to be the youngest person to have her own podcast on iHeartRadio. It's called Let's Be Real with Sammy J. We'll have in-depth and unfiltered conversations with celebrities, activists, athletes, and influencers. We'll cover topics we're curious about, topics my guests are passionate about, and topics many of us are just too afraid to talk about. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And uh, we're going to continue with the Black History Month theme we've been working on. And initially, when I was trying to pick out a topic, I was thinking I would do something on a slave rebellion. And there are a lot of interesting slave rebellions out there. I was trying to pick between you know, which one I wanted to cover. But ultimately, I ended up looking more into slave escapes. And there are a lot of interesting slave escapes, too. Um, Some are really well known, like Harriet Tubman, obviously. Others are just kind of bizarre, like this guy, Henry Box Brown. He literally mailed himself to freedom. So (laughs) that's pretty cool. But I don't know if we could talk about that for an entire podcast. But Finally, I settled on the story of Ellen and William Craft because they had this really interesting story. Uh, it's really inspiring, but there's also an element of complete bizarreness to it, too. I don't know if that's a twist. A so twist. To speak. Yeah, that's a much more eloquent way of putting it. <laughs> um, a twist. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting one. And once I, once I discovered their story, I knew like that that had to be the podcast for the week. Yeah, so it involves a woman named Ellen, who was a 22-year-old slave who appeared to be white, and she would disguise herself as a young, sickly, well-off white man and travel by train and steamer to freedom. And she was accompanied by her husband, William, who was playing the part of a young man's faithful slave. And the really just mind-boggling part about this, to me anyway, is that it was only eight days after thinking of this plan, this escape plan that they hatched that the couple was completely free. Yeah, and I think the mind-boggling part to me is that they are escaping from Macon, Georgia. So it's 1,000 miles from freedom or to freedom to get to the free states. It's amazing. I, I just, if, if you think about going that far, and we're going to talk about their journey and all of the slave states they have to go through, this really long trip, this really harrowing trip. The obstacles they have to overcome. Yeah, it's amazing. And that they were so um, 
so ingenious to think of this disguise, this uh, masquerading Ellen as a young man and by doing that, breaking not only racial and sex boundaries, but class boundaries as well, since she's disguised as a pretty well-off country gentleman. Right. Pretty cool story. Yeah, definitely. And um, a lot of other people have their stories as well. They went on to become darlings of the abolition movement, and they ended up publishing the narrative of their journey called Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom. So... Um, but the escape definitely wasn't easy, as we mentioned. Um, it took a lot of planning, a lot of... A lot um, of nerve. A lot of nerve, definitely. And so we're going to go a, a little bit into that right now. Yeah, and the reason the reason why they were willing to risk it, uh, aside from just achieving their own freedom, is that they really couldn't stand the idea of having their own family someday and having it broken apart, having their children sold off, uh, because that's how their early family lives had been. So Ellen was born in 1826 in Clinton, Georgia, and she was the daughter of her master, Major James Smith, and his slave, Maria Smith, a biracial slave. And she was often mistaken as a member of her master's white family, which is something that his wife, the plantation mistress, did not like at all. And uh, Maria suffered and Ellen suffered because of this. They were not treated well on the plantation by the mistress. And uh, so finally, when Ellen is 11 years old, the mistress finally gets rid of her. She gives her as a wedding present to her own daughter. And so Ellen moves. She's separated from her mother and uh, all her family and her friends. And all her family. Yeah. And she's away from this original, very cruel mistress, though. So the mistress's daughter lives in Macon, Georgia, where it is where Ellen eventually moves. And it's there that she meets William Kraft, who at age 16, he's already seen his family torn apart piece by piece as well. First, his master sells off his mother and father as they grow older. Then they sell off his brother and then a sister, too. William and another brother were apprenticed to trades, though. I think his brother became a blacksmith, and he learned cabinet making and actually became quite skilled at it. So that was a positive for him. Before his apprenticeship was actually over, though, his master sold his brother and mortgaged William as well as his 14-year-old sister for cotton speculating money. The problem was, though, when he eventually couldn't make that payment, the children had to be sold off to different men to to get the money to make up that difference. So William actually had to watch his sister stand on an auction block. They were both auctioned off. And it's really poignant how he describes this. We were talking a little bit about that earlier, about watching his sister being taken away and she's being loaded onto a cart to go home to her new master. And he just kind of has to watch. And since he's being auctioned off at the time, he can't even say goodbye to he her. He just wants to say goodbye. He asks another slave to ask the cart to wait for a second. He asks the guy who's auctioning to let him go and say goodbye and nobody lets him. He just has to watch her drive away. It's very probably one of the saddest parts of the narrative. Yeah, heartbreaking. But then he's purchased by a bank cashier who sends him back to his apprenticeship. So that's kind of where he ends up. But in the narrative, William actually later admits that he and Ellen postponed their marriage for quite some time, even after they met and got to know each other because they were afraid of having children that could be bought and traded as well. That was sort of the deal. If a mother had children and she was a slave, they were sort of already part of that 
way of life. Yeah, they were the property of whoever owned her. And he even writes about this in the narrative quite poignantly. He writes, quote, but after puzzling our brains for years, we were reluctantly driven to the sad conclusion that it was almost impossible to escape from slavery in Georgia and travel 1,000 miles across the slave states. We therefore resolved to get the consent of our owners, be married, settle down in slavery, and endeavor to make ourselves as comfortable as possible under that system. But, you know, it's no surprise here. They obviously don't settle down. They keep on thinking of a way to escape this system, even though they are so far away from free states. And finally, in December 1848, William hatches a plan. And it's a pretty amazing plan. It's that, well, Ellen could pass as white and William could act as her slave, but white women didn't travel unaccompanied with a male slave. It just wasn't proper. It wasn't how things worked and it wouldn't fly. So for this plan they're trying to cook up to actually work, Ellen would have to pass off not only as a white person, but as a man, because that's no surprise at all. A, a young white country gentleman traveling with his slave. Well, there was another problem as well, too, that they had to overcome. Even after they figured out the perfect costume, time was a big factor. The best opportunity for them to leave would be at Christmas time, since that was the time when slaves were most likely to get time off from their masters. So after a little convincing, Ellen decides to go for this plan, decides maybe, maybe it'll work. And they quickly start to go to work on her disguise that they've devised. Yeah, once she decides she's okay with it, they really swing into action. It's funny, though, in the narrative, uh, William makes a really strong point of emphasizing that Ellen only agreed to this disguise, this cross-dressing disguise, because it was the only way possible. She was not, like, into it or something. And I just think that's that's. It's kind of funny to to look at certain um, ideas that that people try to put into their own narrative. Make sure they set the story straight. Yeah, he wants her to still seem proper and not tarnish her character at all by this thing that she had to do. Yeah, a proper Victorian lady. But in the meantime, you know, when when this was actually going down, they were working hard on a disguise that would make her a convincing man. And so Ellen, who worked as a seamstress for her family, um, got to work on sewing men's pants. And then William went about town. He went to all these different suppliers so he wouldn't attract suspicion by buying too much from one person and bought her hat and a coat and these high-heeled men's shoes to give her a little bit of extra height. And even my favorite touch, I think, is green spectacles because she says that, you know, she's going to be in the company of men quite a bit and she might feel a little more comfortable if she at least had some kind of eye shade, you know, something to hide behind or at least make her feel more comfortable. Yeah, it was kind of an ingenious touch. And they it's interesting because they really thought about the little details like that. They thought about everything. They even just so she wouldn't be asked to register their names and log books because they were illiterate. They couldn't read and write at that point. Ellen made a sling for her right arm so that she wouldn't be asked to sign things. She'd have a good excuse. Right. And to hide her beardless face and avoid long conversations with people, she wrapped her cheeks and chin in poultices and a white handkerchief. So good way to deter anyone who wants to get too close to you. Yeah, definitely. And uh, right before they left on December 21st, that same year, 1848, with their, you know, they've obtained their passes from their masters, William cuts Ellen's hair about shoulder length and 
all said and done, she looked like this very sickly, well-off country gentleman. It was a convincing disguise for sure. And so that morning they left their house or they left Ellen's house, and they parted ways because obviously they didn't want anybody to catch them going from her house right to the train station. And they arrived there separately. It's interesting. I've actually been to this Macon train station. I think it's a museum today, but um, I, I feel like I've got a little part of history here. And um, Ellen buys their tickets a ticket for her and for her slave, her supposed slave. She got into one of the nicer cars. William boarded one of the cars for slaves. And um, they're almost lost right from the start. All this careful planning they've put into it the past few days, they're almost betrayed before they even leave town. Yeah, it's a really scary experience, actually. William spots the owner of the cabinet shop that he's worked for standing on the platform And the guy actually has a little suspicion and starts walking through the train. But luckily, he doesn't notice Ellen at all. I guess her disguise was, in fact, pretty good. Um, And the whistle blows right before he gets to William's car. So pretty close call there. Apparently, the cabinet maker, uh, his suspicions are allayed as soon as he realizes they're not on the train or as soon as he thinks they're not on the train, goes home doesn't give it any thought for the next few days since they do have passes. Uh, but meanwhile, Ellen is running into a little trouble of her own. She realized that she was sitting right next to a guy named Mr. Cray, who was a friend of her master's and a guy who had been at the house recently for dinner and who knew her since she was a child. So somebody who it seems like pretty likely he could recognize her. So she doesn't want to chat with him because she's afraid that if he hears her and looks at her, it'll be enough to betray who she really is. So she feigns deafness and he asks a few times, how about this weather along the lines of that? And she doesn't answer. And finally, he just about shouts it and she says, oh, it's nice. And then he assumes she's deaf and, and doesn't try to chat any longer. Um, but she spends the rest of the trip listening to him and his friends talk about cotton and slaves and abolitionists. So Sweating have, bullets, no doubt. Yeah, it must have been a very, very uncomfortable ride. So they reach Savannah safely. And from there, Ellen and William take a steamer bound for Charleston. Ellen is the master sleeping in the berth, of course, and William is on cotton bags on the deck. So it's here where the charade gets really interesting, if you didn't already think it was interesting enough before. To explain Ellen's bandages, her early bedtime, and the lack of social mingling on board the steamer, William spreads the word around that his master had terrible rheumatism and that they were on their way to Philadelphia for medical consultation. So William plays the part, too, publicly heating the bandages and really... Talking about it a lot, too. Yeah, definitely. Gossiping, almost, about the situation with his so-called master. And he did the job so well that people really took notice at this point. The captain told Ellen, while she was disguised, you have a very attentive boy, sir, but you had better watch him like a hawk when you get on to the north. And a slave dealer actually came up to her and offered to take William off of her hands, since she'd certainly lose him once she got on free soil. Yes, yeah, like tries to buy William from her. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. I think she says, "I, I couldn't get on without him." Yeah. Uh, but Ellen is is pretty popular too as this young gentleman invalid. There's this chatty young officer who sort of tries to befriend her and give her pointers on how to treat her slave. He hears her thanking William and tells her, "You should never talk to your slave like that. You you have to." 
um, be harsh with them. And you can imagine what Ellen is probably thinking right. to that. But once they get to Charleston, she stays in this nice hotel and the staff preens on her or him, as they think, uh, for being so sickly, you know, warming up the poultices. And, and William is still playing that part, spreading the word, making everyone think this this young man really needs to be carefully attended to. And uh But they run into another hitch here because from Charleston, they're supposed to take a steamer all the way to Philadelphia, which would be their final free destination. But unfortunately, the steamer that went to Philadelphia didn't run in the winter. And to make things even scarier for them, the last run that had been made, a stowaway had been found, a a runaway slave. So arousing suspicion already. Everyone is kind of on edge, and I'm sure they were at this point, too. So they change their plan, and instead they end up taking the steamer to Wilmington, North Carolina instead. But they run into trouble there, too. The ticket seller was not cool with them signing their names, William Johnson and Slave, which is what they'd been doing. With him signing the name for them. Right, exactly. He was suspicious because there had been kind of a crackdown on whites at that time traveling with unidentified black slaves with no proof of ownership. They could have been abolitionists after all. Yeah, the idea was that any white abolitionist could come to the South, pick up a slave, pretend it was his own, and then travel north to freedom. So they wanted proof of ownership and all this documentation. So consequently, travelers would be waylaid for quite some time. Um, and that's that looks like what was going to be maybe happening to, to Ellen and William. Fortunately, that wasn't the case, though, because several of Ellen's new cronies that she'd met on her previous ride stepped up to the plate. The young officer vouched for Mr. Johnson, pretending to know him very well. Said he knew his kin. (laughs) And the steamboat captain volunteered to write the name for Ellen. So they were on board and in Wilmington by morning. Yeah, and once they were in Wilmington, they kept on going, taking a train to Richmond, Virginia. And Ellen rode in this car with an old gentleman and his two daughters. And this might be one of the lightest or... Potentially. I mean, if you can have a light part of this narrative, I think this is it. Ellen is in this car with this old gentleman and his two lovely daughters. And again, all three of them are really concerned about this poor, sickly young man and his rheumatism. And judging by the narrative, it seems almost like the two daughters get a bit of a crush on this young Mr. Johnson. Um, Those poultices really (laughs) drew them in. (laughs) They must have just felt so sorry for him. But William writes, quote, they fell in love with the wrong chap. And I like William's little interjections of humor throughout the narrative. But even when things are going pretty well, you know, this this old country gentleman giving his recipe for rheumatism relief to Ellen, uh, there's still some close calls. And at Richmond, this old woman misidentified William as her runaway slave. And Ellen has to correct her, say, no, that's my slave, not your Ned. And after this, there's one little bit in the narrative that I find a little hard to swallow. And if you've read, if you've read, um, several slave narratives before, you know that sometimes it breaks down into a dialogue, which is more like a novel than than a personal account. And this is this is that spot in Ellen and William's narrative because reluctant to talk Ellen, who has been feigning deafness and tying her head up with poultices, apparently asks this slew of pointed questions to this woman who has 
had her own slave run away and is looking for him. Questions like, were you, was your slave married? What happened to his wife? Oh, you sold his wife. Things like that, trying to sort of make the old woman see the wrong of her ways. Almost get a rise out of her. Get a rise, yeah. So not only engaging in a long conversation, but a contentious conversation, trying to, to make this woman realize what she'd done. I don't know if I, if I totally buy that. It, it might have been more of a, um, a to the point conversation if she was having it. It does seem a little tough to believe, but nevertheless, they pressed on to D.C. from there and took the train to Baltimore. At this point, we're at Christmas Eve. It's the last slave port before freedom. But because it was the last slave port before Pennsylvania, it was really tough to get through. Ellen and William were removed from the train. Ellen had to speak with the railroad officer who asked them to prove ownership at that point. And they argued that she argued, in fact, that she had already bought tickets in Charleston to go all the way through to Philadelphia, but the guy wouldn't budge. And when the departure bell rang, he suddenly just broke. He he let them go. He says, this guy's clearly not well. Let's just let him through. I don't see any harm in it. Yeah. I mean, they just scraped by. Very, very close call. And there's a really frightening part in the narrative when Ellen, who has been arguing admirably with this um, this railroad officer, finally doesn't know what else to say and just looks at William. And they're both terrified they're going to do something, make some faux pas or just be betrayed by their emotions finally and be lost right here at the very end. But, yeah, fortunately, they get on the train and they arrived in Philadelphia free. And as soon as they were out of the station, you can imagine the relief. Ellen breaks down sobbing and they traveled to an abolitionist run boarding house in the city. Interestingly, a free black man on the train had told William about it, urging him to to run away from his master as soon as he got on to free soil. It proved to be useful information. And once they were in Pennsylvania, they were really welcomed by the abolitionist network and kind of shuttled about to different towns because even though Pennsylvania was a free state, it was not a safe place to be because it was a border state. It was someplace where slave hunters could run in, essentially, grab slaves and and take them back into the South. So luckily, with the help of this abolitionist network, they're, they kind of dodge around a little bit. They're shuttled about. And during that time, they're giving reading lessons. Finally, they're sent to Boston, though, since Pennsylvania is unsafe. But Boston wasn't exactly safe either, especially after something called the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Now, Congress passed this law in exchange for Southern support of California entering the Union as a free state and the slave trade ending in the district. It meant that federal commissioners were allowed to hunt down runaways in any state, no matter how long the slave had been free. Yeah, so it put Ellen and William at risk, even in relatively safe Boston. And uh, not long after that, Ellen and William's former masters hire these slave hunters named Willis Hughes and John Knight, and they essentially stalk the couple. I mean, they are looking for them and presumably would have taken them back to Macon by force. And abolitionists are hiding Ellen and William and, again, shuttling them about to keep them away from these slave hunters. And this is this is a, another harrowing detail of this story. But when they're finally legally married on November 7th, 1850, because, of course, uh, their first marriage wasn't 
a legal ceremony. Uh, but when they're finally legally married, the officiant gave William a revolver and a knife and told him, defend yourself and defend your wife with this if slave hunters try to get you. Wow. Pretty scary. So they end up moving to England. While they're there, they have five kids. They have a boarding house and an import business for West African goods. They end up publishing their memoir, as we already know, and they release Ellen's portrait in her disguise. And this sells really, really well. So well, in fact, that William mentions he hopes he might use the funds one day to buy his sister out of slavery. So yeah, this is one thing that he's held on to, the sad idea of seeing a sister say goodbye. And um, he ends up finding out where she is in Mississippi and trying to find a way to to get her back. Yeah. Um, and about the portrait, too. I mean, you can you can search for this online and, and find it. But there's Ellen in her top hat and she's depicted without the facial pulses. So you can you can see what she looks like. I think they they made the decision that picture might sell a little better. Um, but, yeah, they're they're doing well for themselves in England. And they really use their fame and connections to promote the anti-slavery cause, too. They even appeared in the Crystal Palace exhibit, which was, of course, the 1851 London World's Fair. And it wasn't in sort of the exhibitionist way you might expect them to be shown as as part of a world's fair. Instead, they just walked around the Crystal Palace arm in arm with really famous, prominent abolitionists of the opposite gender. So I think it it caused quite a stir because for for Ellen and the abolitionist she's walking with, it, it looks like a white man and a white woman just strolling about London together. Uh, equals. Equals. And and that was the that was the point of of having their display like that to show that the abolitionists in England considered them their equals. They respected their story of escape. So like you said, they have some respect there and they seem to have acquired a pretty good life. But after the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870, they actually came home to Georgia with two of their kids and set up a school for former slaves and a farm. And Devlina and I were speculating on this a little earlier about why why they came back. And I mean, I can, I guess I can see a few different reasons. They might have wanted to live in their home again as free people. Um, they might have wanted to prove a point like we can go back and so we will. We don't have to be fugitives anymore. But I, I guess I kind of think the most likely explanation is maybe they wanted to help their, their people. So slave, former slaves from Georgia who could get the opportunities they had gotten, like learning how to read and write and establish trades. I don't know, though. Yeah, we can't know for sure. But what we do know is that things weren't that easy for them, really, when they came back. Their farm ended up failing because cotton prices started to drop. Their school had to close. And William was actually accused at one point of using school funds for for personal for personal gain. And the KKK threatened them as well. I mean, that's not that surprising, I guess. But it occurred also. And in 1890, they ended up moving to Charleston to live with their daughter. Ellen died in 1891 and William in 1900. Yeah, and out of this whole narrative, if, if you go and, and read the whole thing, which is all available online, I'd recommend doing it. it. It's not only an interesting story, but it is interesting to hear William's own words. But we've got to point out that you don't really get Ellen's side of the story out of the whole thing, because even though she's the one who is keeping up this elaborate ruse, you know, the one arguing with the railroad officer and feigning deafness and chatting with the young army officer. It's it's very much William's story in the account. And the 
stress of it was apparently so much that she she was sick for quite some time after they arrived in the free state. So I, I wish we had a little more from her, you know? I wish we did, too, especially because apparently there were rumors circulating that she had turned herself over to an American in London and that she missed slavery. Yeah. Well, that's one point, though, where we where we do get to hear a little bit from her. And it's such an interesting glimpse into into who this woman was, who had sort of faded into the background after the exciting escape. You know, she had assumed the role of the the proper Victorian wife who, when William would present their story during lecture, she would stand quietly by his side and did a little bit of work out, out of the home, but mostly was working as a, a wife and mother. It, it is interesting when we finally get to hear her stand up for her, for her own freedom. Yeah, and we have a quote from her here. She says, I never had the slightest inclination, whatever, of returning to bondage. And God forbid that I should ever be so false to liberty as to prefer slavery in its stead. In fact, since my escape from slavery, I have gotten much better in every respect than I could have possibly anticipated. Though, had it been to the contrary, my feelings in regard to this would have been just the same, for I had much rather starve in England, a free woman, than be a slave for the best man that ever breathed upon the American continent. Yours very truly, Ellen Craft. I think that's probably the best way to end a podcast like this, in Ellen's own words. I hardly agree. And, um, yeah, so if you if you have any other great runaway slave stories you want to share with us, I mean, I think these are are so fascinating and touching. We'd love to hear your favorites or maybe some that you'd like us to try to cover at some point. You can contact us through Twitter at Missed in History. You can send us an email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And we're also on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about how the more classic runaway slave escape went, not this uh, elaborate disguise, although there were a few other women who cross-dressed their way to freedom, Clarissa Davis and Mary Milborn and uh, Maria Weems. But if you want to learn more of the classic story about the Underground Railroad, we do have an article on that. It's called How the Underground Railroad Worked, and you could find it by searching for Underground Railroad on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. 
We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.